Well, praise the Lord. It's good to be in the house of God this morning. I don't uh, ordinarily... I hate these bulky keys in my pocket. I don't ordinarily um, break from our study on uh, the book of Ephesians or any book for contemporary events. But this week, I feel I have to do that. Um, As you know... this last week, America has witnessed what is the worst bombing that's ever occurred on American soil. And, and uh, I'm sure you, like me, have been just uh, deeply moved by this tragedy. I, I uh, just was, I've had in my head the, that picture in the front page of the paper for about four days now. It was in most papers throughout the country of this little girl, Bailey Aman. And the picture of this fireman bringing her lifeless body out of the rubble of that insane bomb bombage. And there's something about, and, and some of you who have been around Woodland Hills know this for a while, but there's something about kids. When kids get hurt, that sends me into a tizzy. And you have to know that because I'm going to be speaking something out of that. I, I, I go in a, in, in a weird loop, and that's, we all do to some degree, I, it just, it just rocks me to the gut. And, and just the idea of this uh, bomb going off where there's a daycare with 20, 30 kids getting killed, it just, it, it, I can't categorize it in my brain. And it, it just sends me in kind of a spin. And uh, so what I want to talk about, I, I, I wanted to do my Ephesians sermon, but to be honest with you, I just couldn't get energy into it because this was on my head. Uh, this was just really in my heart. I've lost a couple nights sleep over it because just the pictures of of the stuff in my brain keep me awake at night. And I'm sure that that I'm not alone in that. I'm sure uh, many of us have have felt this that deeply, even though I don't know a soul down there. But I can enter into the the shoes of of, uh, Bailey's mom and dad, and that just rips me. So I want to ask this question. How do you respond to something like this? How do you respond to something like this? And this is a word not just for Oklahoma, but it's a word for us whenever we confront people who are in the Oklahoma kind of situations. And there are a number, even here in this congregation, that are, are in situations, the nightmare of which would classify as something equivalent to an Oklahoma tragedy. And the question is, how do we respond to people in those situations? What do we say? What do we do? And I think it's a very important message because I think more often than not, Christians don't respond that well. And I want to turn to the book of Job and just do a little study on this. How to respond to people who are in desperate situations. And maybe even how to think ourselves when we're in a desperate situation. But I want to read, and you don't, if you want to follow along, you can. Otherwise, you can just listen. The book of Job, I've been studying this for the last month or so for this project that I'm working on. And I'm convinced that it is just one of the most profound, insightful pieces of literature ever written. I'm sure that has a lot to do with the fact that it's inspired by God. But uh, it's just, it just speaks volumes to us when we're in this kind of a situation. The prologue of Job is a literary setup for the whole drama here. You can't press the prologue, uh, uh, chapters 1 and 2, for literal details. The point of the prologue is, is to say that Satan was attacking God's way, or what he thought was God's way of, of orchestrating the world. And the point of the prologue is to say that there are things that go on behind the scenes that human beings just don't know about, but which really affect what goes on in our life. The result of that whole thing is that Job is uh, 
He enters into a nightmare where his, he loses all of his possession, all of his cattle, and then he loses all of his children, and then he loses his health, and his body is covered with boils that he has to scrape off with, a, with an iron uh, piece of metal or something. That's a bad situation. Now, Job's got three friends, and that's what really this story is about, three friends. And so I want to read in, in Job chapter 2, verse 11 through 13. Said when Job's three friends, Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Namathite, heard about all the trouble that had come upon Job, they set out from their homes and met together by agreement to go and sympathize with him and comfort him. That's good. When a person's in a nightmare situation, they need people to be around and, and to comfort them, and that's what these friends did. When they saw him from a distance, they could hardly recognize him. Maybe because of the despair. I don't know if you've ever seen a person who's in such despair that they don't even look like they... You, can't, you can hardly recognize who they are. Maybe it was despair, maybe it was the boils, but they couldn't even recognize him. They began to weep loudly, and they tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads. It's a sign of mourning in the ancient culture. They pour sand on your head. And they sat on the ground with him for seven days and seven nights, and no one said a word to him because of they saw how great his suffering was. They sat there on the ground, picture this, for seven days. No one said a word. And that was wise, and that was good. But then in the next verse, this happens. It said, after this, Job opened his mouth. And he began to get, put words to his pain. He began to give expression to just how deep his pain was. And it says that he cursed the day that he was born. And then for 35 chapters, what you have is more or less Job cursing the day that he was born, cursing the earth, and cursing God. He's just shooting in every direction. Because you can get to the point in your soul where you can't see any rhyme or reason to anything and you just shoot. But his three friends, unfortunately, for 35 chapters, tried to argue theology with Job. And they tried to correct him. And they tried to make sense out of things. And, and the thing is, is that most of what they say, if you were to read it, you would say, that's pretty good theology. I mean, read it sometime. Bildad, Eliphaz is kind of the leader of the whole thing. His theology sounds kosher when you just put it on a sheet. If you, if you divorced it from the context in which he's saying it, I bet most of us would agree that this is pretty sound theology. At least it sounds very much like some of what goes by the name of theology today. God's in total control, Job. God's on his throne. God does what is right. God does what is just. God knows what he's doing. There's a silver lining in every cloud, and it goes on and on and on. So the implication is that, Job, something must be wrong with you, otherwise this wouldn't be happening to you. And Job refuses to believe that, and instead he blames God. Now God shows up towards the end of the book, which is interesting. He doesn't come in in the middle. Towards the end of the book... He confronts Job, and he corrects Job. He says, Job, neither you or your friends have any idea what you're talking about. This world is a very big world. It, you have no idea of the magnitude of this world and the complexity of this world and what it's like to run this world. You don't know what goes on behind the scenes. And then he mentions this. This is really interesting, but he says, Job, you try taming Leviathan. Now, Leviathan was this ancient sea monster that all ancient people believed was trying to devour the earth. The Lord says, you try taming Leviathan. He blows, read chapter 41, he blows fire out of his mouth. He can set coals on fire just by breathing. You know that, Job. His smoke comes out of his nose. He's got scales all over him. He tries to swallow the sun, the, the Lord says. You try taming him. 
Now, what he's getting at is the Lord is communicating to Job in, in a way that Job could understand that there are forces that even God is opposed to. And Job believes in a Leviathan. All the people of that day do. That that's kind of their equivalent for Satan, this, this diabolic creature who's trying to swallow the cosmos. And so the Lord says, Job, you try dealing with him if you can think you do a better job than I do. But the thrust of the whole thing is to say, Job, it's a, it's a complex, strange world. And when you don't know what you're talking about, maybe you just should be quiet. But God isn't angry with Job. But God is angry with his friends. Listen to this. After the Lord had said these things to Job, he said to Eliphaz, the, the Temanite. Eliphaz is the leader of Job's friends. I am angry with you and your two friends. Because you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. Now, Job just spent 35 chapters cursing God. But the Lord calls him my servant. So now take, he tells Eliphaz, take seven bulls and seven rams and go to my servant Job and sacrifice a burnt offering for yourself. My, listen to this. My servant Job will pray for you. You need his prayer. And I will accept his prayer. I'm not listening to you turkeys. You got your heads in the wrong place. I'm going to listen to my servant Job. He knows how to speak truth. And I'll accept his prayer, and I won't deal with you according to your folly, for his sake. <laughs> I love it. Let's pray. Father, in the face of this thing which has really shaken all of us up, Lord, and uh, raised a lot of questions and posed a lot of problems and caused a lot of pain, I pray, Lord, that you'd help me to speak right, speak honestly. And uh, God, give us insight, give us wisdom, and whatever good can be brought out of this, I hope one of the things, Lord, is that we might learn a lesson about how to deal with people who are in situations like this. Because, Lord, you're, you're seeing fit to send a lot of people like that to us. Teach us, we pray in your name. Amen. My, uh, <clears throat> my grief was turned to anger the day after this uh, bomb went off. And to be very honest with you, I, I, this has happened to me almost every time there's been some kind of major tragedy. I, and I, I, I want to I just say this before I even start, that, that I, I'm, I'm talking a lot of, uh, out of my own heart this morning, and I don't expect everyone to agree with me on this, and I hope I'm not offensive, and, and uh, uh, I, I hope you don't see me as being impious. I don't mean to be, but on the other hand, we're, we, we always say that we're really about speaking truth, and I want to just tell you the truth of, of, of what's going on in my heart in response to this, and I think it comes right out of the book of Job. But it's this. One way that you can respond to this kind of thing, and I'm, I, I'm afraid that it's the way that Christians usually respond to this thing, tragedies like this, is the way Job's friends responded to Job's pain. The day after this bomb went off, I was walking around Bethel College, and, and, and uh, someone had put up a poster. And I, I, I believe that the person who put up the poster, I know that the, poster, the person who put up the poster was sincere and honest and godly and meant well. They just felt they had to say something, and they were frustrated, so they said this. They said, pray for Oklahoma City. That's good. We've got to pray for Oklahoma City. But then they said, the Lord Jesus will save. Now, you, you can say, well, gosh, who could have problems with that? I mean, you're a Christian preacher. You can have problems with someone saying the Lord Jesus will save. And th that's a godly thing to say. It's, it's a positive thing. It will build encouragement. And maybe it's just me, but it strikes me as kind of an Eliphaz theology statement. 
What does that verse mean? What does that saying mean in this context? You see, it's not just, is the statement true, but is it applicable to this context? Job's, most, most of what Eliphaz and the other ones said uh, was true, but in the context in which they said it, it was folly. How would Bailey's mother, that little child brought out of the rubber, how, the, the, the rubble, rubble, how would Bailey's mom hear that statement? The Lord Jesus will save. And I don't mean to be impious or, or irrelevant or ungodly here, but I want to be honest with, 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 a, with a very obvious question, and it's this. If I was Bailey's mom, I'd say, well, it's a little too late for that. I'm sorry. What do you mean Jesus will save? There's already 200 dead, 30 of them are kids. What does that statement mean? What are you getting at? Maybe it means some kind of ambiguous, well, eventually in the afterlife you'll save, or something like that. Maybe it means that. But in this context, what's relevant here, it does not apply to. And it sounds like somebody who's just trying to be positive and and just trying to find some good in it or build confidence. But reality, the starkness of the ugly, ugly, ugly reality makes this statement sort of inapplicable or, or even offensive. And maybe it's just me. And the other night I was watching a Christian talk show. And whenever I, I watch a Christian talk show after a thing like this, I usually get beside myself. If there's kids involved especially. But you had, in this one case, they were saying, uh, they're talking and they're trying to be very upbeat. They're talking about this tragedy and they're being upbeat. You know, and, and how God is working and doing great things here. And, and you know there was a guy who, who was supposed to bring his child down to this daycare center and he overslept 15 minutes and he got out and he rushed to the place and he got there just after the bomb went off. God was watching over that man. And if I was that man, I'd feel like that too and I understand where that's coming from. But when you say it in this context, if I was Bailey's mom, what would I think? Well, why didn't he help me to oversleep? And if he's a good God for letting this guy sleep in, then maybe he's a bad guy for not letting me sleep in. If that's the way he operates, well, then I'm not very impressed. If I was Bailey's mom or any of the mothers or fathers of the kids that were in this thing, that's what I'd be thinking. A different radio talk show, they had a real famous TV evangelist on there with this lady who had a giant hairdo, and, and they were talking about... And they were just talking and talking about, you know, this uh, Oklahoma thing. And, and they were just... This guy said, Oklahoma City, I want you to know God is doing great things. Expect God to do great things. And the woman with the hair bonnet's going, amen, expect a miracle today. And if I'm one of the people who have been involved in this blow-up, I'm thinking, well, why didn't he do it yesterday if he's doing great things? It sounds, and maybe it's just me, okay, so cut me slack, but it strikes me as cheap. It strikes me as, 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 as an Eliphaz statement. It strikes me as, I wanted to say when I was watching this, what planet did you guys come from? This is the earth, and right now the earth is not a good place to be, and things are all screwed up, and why don't you just look at it and see that and quit saying these pieces of folly? Because it sounds so good and so upright and so lifting or whatever, but if you're in this situation, if you have an eye for the kids that are being blown apart, it just doesn't, it doesn't do any good. In fact, maybe it does a lot of harm. In trying to defend God... At least some of us hear you as really indicting God and accusing God. And it just seems, and it just seems to me that there is among believers now, like there was with, with Job's friends, among some believers, a need, just an incurable need. When, when tragedy happens, we want to like, 
like, like, like, like pack it all in. We want to say, oh, it's not that bad. We, oh, we, come on, we can pick up the pieces here. We, we, we can put flowers around it. And, and, and we just want security. We want the world to be a good place because we think that God controls everything and God's behind everything and there's a blueprint that's, that, that makes sense out of everything and, and nothing really occurs outside of God's will, although it may appear that way right now. Really, there's a secret divine plan that's behind the whole thing and everything's good and everything was wonderful and there's a silver lining in every cloud and a rainbow after every storm and everything is going to be wonderful and good if you just look for it. And that is exactly what Job's friends were spewing out of their mouth for 35 chapters. The Lord said, I'm angry with you guys. Don't you know what that is doing to Job? I think a lot of it, like with Job's friends, is, is not so much trying to even help the person that we're talking to. It's trying to help ourselves. We want to be secure. We want to believe that this will never happen to us. We want to believe that, you know, whatever the reason is that they got blown up, we'll never get blown up. But there, the trouble is... There's just nothing in the Bible and certainly nothing in our, our experience that would indicate that all that wishful, positive, cliche-ish thinking is based on anything other than a denial of reality. Because from a biblical perspective, this terrorism that went on down in Oklahoma City is simply a mini-instance of something that characterizes the entire globe. Because from a biblical perspective, this entire world is under the bondage of a cosmic terrorist called Satan. The Bible says in 1 John 5, 19 and many other places that he is the Lord of this world, the controller of this world. And he exists because he is so evil. He exists for the purpose of thwarting God's will. And I don't know where we get the idea that God's will can't be thwarted. Whenever anyone goes to hell, God's will for eternity has been thwarted. Why should we think it can't be thwarted in this world? That's what evil is all about. It's what is opposed to God's will. And that's why in the New Testament, there's just the understanding that bad things do happen to good people. Bad things do happen to innocent people. The world is in a state of warfare. It's a war zone. There's cosmic terrorism that goes on. And what that means is this. Sometimes situations are as bad as they really look. Sometimes things are as messy as they really appear. Sometimes they're as nightmarish, nightmarish as they really appear. Sometimes they're as dis disgusting and despicable and putrid and evil and life-denying as they in fact really look because the world's in, a, in the middle of a war zone. And in the face of that, trying to touch it up, pretty it up, can only contribute to the pain of what's going on. So what can we do in the face of this? What can we do? Let me just say three things, okay? And the first thing is maybe the most important, and it's this. When we face nightmarish evil, and we don't have to go to Oklahoma to find it, folks. We had a healing service up here a couple weeks ago, and I got introduced to three people who were in a nightmare situation. A, a thing that is, just, that is just bad. It's bad. It's really bad. And in a situation like this, whether we're talking about responding to Oklahoma or whether we're talking about responding to a neighbor or someone in our small group, our house church, the first thing to know is that you don't have to say anything. In fact, sometimes the best way to respond is to do what Job's friend did at the beginning. And that is to be there, be around them, they need that, but to sit. And to weep loudly and to rent your garment and to put, put sackcloth on your head and cry. And there's not a whole lot more you can do. Just be there. Being quiet is awkward for us, but for the person in the middle of it, they don't even notice it. They got their own pain to deal with. 
What they just need is for someone to have their arms around them. And, and for the time being, don't try to make sense out of it. Don't try to bring a lesson out of it. Don't try to be positive. Just be. Because the truth is, is that when you're dealing with something like, like, like Bailey's mother, there's nothing you can say. We feel the need to fix stuff. We always want to fix people. We want to make sense. We want to bring security. We want to bring comfort. And our intentions are good. But the very attempt to try to do that doesn't legitimize where they're at. In fact, it can really just aggravate the situation. There's nothing you can say that's going to fix this situation. There's no rationality you can give that's going to make sense out of this situation. There's no blueprint you're going to find that's going to make sense out of this situation. Just let it be. Be silent. And sit. If you say anything, just say, I'm really sorry about this. And then be quiet. Just shut up. Job's friends started with wisdom. As soon as things got really ugly and he began to put words on his pain, they got defensive. And they started falling into folly. How did they fall into folly? They thought they had to correct Job's theology. They thought they had to defend God. And folly came out of their mouth. Orthodox folly. Be quiet. Be okay with being quiet. The second thing is this. When it's appropriate, begin to help the person, if it's within your power to do this, begin to help the person understand that the Lord is with them and the Lord's on their side. One of the most beautiful things about the book of Job, I think, is this. First, the Lord didn't show up for 35 chapters. The Lord let Job blow his stack for 35 chapters. Job got his emotional Uzi, and he pointed it towards heaven, and he pointed it towards his mother, and he pointed it towards his friend, and he pointed it towards himself, and he just shot and shot and shot in every direction. And God didn't do anything. God's not intimidated by this. God, God didn't feel like he had to do what Job's friends were doing. I've got to rush down there and correct his theology. He didn't do that. He let the volcano blow. And when a volcano's blowing, let it blow. If you try to cork it because the lava looks too ugly for you, then it's going to have to blow sometime later and it will be worse. Let the volcano blow. But after the volcano has blown, then try to encourage the person to know that far from being God's fault, God is on their side and God wants to be in the middle of this. So the Lord shows up here. And he's not mad at Job. He teaches Job some things for Job's own good, but he's not mad at Job. He's mad at his friends. He's mad at his friends. Because he says, you did not speak right about me. The Lord is on the side. He's with those who are in the middle of suffering. And one of the, in fact, the most important thing they need to see, that they need, when they're done with their, their, their explosion, the most important thing they need to know is that the Lord is with them. The Bible says that Christ suffers with us. And if the cross of Christ means anything, it means that he's right there in the heart of any kind of suffering. I believe the Lord on the cross knows what it's like to be Bailey's mom. I really believe he knows that pain. And he knows what it's like to be a little Bailey. You know, her birthday was supposed to be yesterday. The Lord knows that kind of pain from the inside. The book of Hebrews tells us that there has been no suffering that we've gone through, that he doesn't know firsthand what it's like. On the cross, he took all the pain, all the nightmare, and he absorbed it within himself. And the Lord suffers on the inside of this. And before we can, far more important than giving explanations or coming up with cliches or a comforting word or anything, far more important is to know that you are not alone in this and the Lord is on your side in this and when you cry, He cries, He's there and He hates what you're going through as much as you do. 
and invite the Lord into the situation. Just ask Jesus to come. No explanations, no cliches, no cute stuff. Just, Lord, come and wrap your arms around this person. Lord, use my arms to communicate to them the kind of love and the kind of peace that only you can give. And the third thing to do, be quiet at first. And then in time, and then in time, invite the Lord into the situation and try to help the person see that the Lord is not behind what's happening to them, but he's inside of, of, of where they're at. And the third thing is this. With all that is within you, fight the evil that you're facing. Do whatever you can do to help the situation. Clichés will not help the situation, so don't do clichés. But do whatever's within your power to do. Many times in life, we don't have the power to do anything except pray. Except pray that the Lord will be there. Except pray for some kind of comfort. Pray that whatever is causing this would go away. Other times we are, are in a capacity to do something that's worthwhile that helps the situation. You can pray for Oklahoma City. You can send money to the Salvation Army to go down to Oklahoma City. Some people left their jobs and went down there, paramedics and firemen. You can do whatever you, you, is in your power to do, and that's what we're called to do. Doing stuff to rid the world of evil is far more important than trying to explain the particulars of the evil because there is no explanation for that. Beyond the sheer fact that God made a, world, a very risky world where there are free creatures, free humans, and free angels, we don't know diddly squat about why Oklahoma and not California, or why did God answer this prayer and not that prayer? Why did God let that person oversleep and this, this, not this person? Because we don't know anything that goes on behind the scenes. But far more important than giving some kind of pseudo-explanation is to do something about it. In the New Testament, you never find them trying to un understand why bad things happen to good people. Why bad things happen to innocent people. Because they understand that this world is in a state of terrorism and, and, and warfare. And so Jesus tells us to expect it. These, all the disciples end up being martyred for the faith. Entire Christian families were fed to lions in the early church. Still, they didn't sit there and wonder, well, why does it happen? Why? Because they understood that in this fallen world, stuff like this can happen. You don't find any explanations in the, in, in the early church, but what you do find is a lot of activity to do something about the evil that is there. And so in Jesus' ministries, for example, when he confronts a demon-possessed person, you don't find him trying to theologize it. You don't find him trying to ask questions about, well, how did this demon get here? What did this person do to allow this demon to get here? How could God allow this demon to get here? I mean, we've got to think about this. Why this person and not his mother? Why this person and not his kid? Why this person and not you? He doesn't ask questions like that. They're irrelevant. What he does do is he says, with all the power of God, with all the power of the Father, with all the power of heaven going through me, I'm going to come against this demonic stronghold and cast it out. Do something about the evil that's there. Trying to explain it is a waste of time. And they confronted a blind man in John chapter 9, and then the disciples said, they, Eliphaz, it's just Eliphaz all over again. Well, who sinned here? Was it this man? Did this man sin or did his father sin? And if Eliphaz would have been there, he would have said, well, it was God's will. God, you know, in the mystery of his will, he wants this person to be blind. Jesus, Jesus said, you know, the one thing that's important here is that God could be glorified if I heal this man. And so he prayed for the man and healed him. We're called not to explain, but we're called to do something. To come against the evil that's there. The, the tactic of explaining, having reasons, coming up with cliches, trying to fix things, trying to fix blame, all of that is an Eliphaz theology that we don't need to be a part of. When Jesus would, would, would confront someone like a Mary Magdalene, he, it, it amazes me. He didn't ask any questions. 
Like, Mary Magdalene, how did you get in this situation? What did you do? What were you thinking when you did this? How did you get possessed with six demons? You know, how were you raised? He, he, he doesn't deal with that. Sometimes there's a place to deal with that and counseling and stuff. But Jesus, for Jesus, what's important here is not trying to fix blame, not trying to indict her, not trying to accuse her, but trying to free her. And so he loves her and accepts her and delivers her from the demonic strongholds. And so the church is called to do just that. Rise up and do things. Quit the talking and start the doing. Show something about the character of God by how we come against evil. And we can do it. However bad, however ugly things may appear, however dismal and however hopeless things may appear, we can fight with confidence. We can fight with zeal. We can fight with hope. We can fight with courage. Because the Bible tells us, and this is not some cheap cliche I'm pulling out of my pocket to dress up a situation, but it's the promise of God that when this show is over, when all is said and done, Satan, who is behind all of this, who's been a liar from the beginning and a murderer from the beginning, Satan shall be defeated, amen? And we shall be victors, amen? And that doesn't in any way make this situation down in Oklahoma less tragic than it is. It's a mess, it stinks, it rots, and there's nothing more to be said about it. But I know this, that we can fight and pray against that. We can fight and pray against that, and the world's not always going to be like that. Romans 8 tells us that the, the whole creation groans for the coming of the Son of God. You know that? The whole creation groans. He uses the word there for being in labor pains. You ever seen a person in labor? Man, they scream, Ah! And in a situation like this, the only appropriate Christian response, whether you're on a TV talk show or in the newspaper, is to go, ah, on behalf of Bailey's mom, on behalf of all the parents. Just do what Job's friends did. That's the only appropriate response. But we can scream with a confidence and work with a confidence and pray with a confidence because Romans 8 also tells us that it will not always be this way. You go through a labor pain, and we're in a labor pain, but the Son of God shall be made manifest and the kingdom of God shall, uh, shall, shall appear. That's the promise of God. And Satan will be thrown into a pit and locked up and never again released. And, and the Bible tells us, and this is the word of God now, this is not some cheap cliche, it's the word of God, that there's coming a time when, there'll be, when God rules, when Jesus Christ rules and his love rules and his power rules, there's coming a time when there will be no more blown up kids. And if I didn't believe that, I think this universe was just too cruel to even live in. There'll be a time when there'll be no more blown up kids, no more of this tragedy, no more terrorism, no more sickos making bombs, no more parents losing their kids, no more kids losing their parents and husbands losing their wives and wives losing husbands because that was never part of God's beautiful plan. It's nothing but evil. But there's coming a time when evil will be vanquished. And the song we sang, we can sing without denying the reality of the catastrophe, but the God of peace, will crush Satan underneath our feet. Praise God. When I see something like happening in Oklahoma, I'll tell you something. I cannot wait. I cannot wait to crush this terrorist underneath my feet. For the sake of, of, of Bailey, I want to crush his head. God's justice will reign. We're told that, I close with this, we're told that, that Paul, Paul has the audacity to say this. Now, when that day has come, the sufferings of this present world can't even be compared to the glory which God has in store for those who love Him. And that just tells me that I can't even begin to conceive 
of, of, of what it would be like, what that would be like. I've always been ripped apart by the kids. And that's a lot about my own issues. It's just that there ought to be a law that says kids, kids can't get hurt. But I also know that if kids can be loved by grown-ups, they can be killed by grown-ups. But my biggest issue has always been, Lord, why that? Why, why, why that? And the answer I, I've always gotten, and I've even shared this before, but it's really been the kind of answer that, that, that God gave to Job. And that's that, Greg, you've got to know that I don't kill the kids. And as to why they get killed, it's too complex for you to understand. But I'll show you this, Greg. And there was about five years ago when Jacob Wetterling was kidnapped. The Lord just gave me this vision of this playground, the merry-go-round, and there's these children. And they're just laughing and laughing and jumping on Jesus and crawling over and pulling his beard and having all this fun. Some of them had concentration camps, number of them. Jacob Wetterling was there. I think Kareen Ersted is there now. And Bailey Arman is there now. And they were having a good time. And the Lord just looked at me with his kids pulling out his beard, and he just says, Greg, let me take care of the kids. I can make it up to the children. You just got to trust me on that. That's all I can do is say, okay, Lord, Bailey's yours, you know. Somehow you can make it up. And I pray, Lord, for her mother that she'll grab onto you and that it would be made up for her too. Father, I pray, God, that you'd make us a people who are real, just real. God, free us from our own needs to feel secure by coming out with half-truths. God, make us ministers to the people in this world that are being bruised by Satan. Lord, help us, God, to be effective in reaching out and just being real, being there, being present. Help us to be okay, Lord. You've told us, Lord, to bear one, one another's burdens, not to explain them or not to blame them. And Lord, make us people who bear one another's burdens, who can intercede and are okay with just being there. Lord, make us people that are okay with not needing to be defensive when sometimes we say things that are not true in our anger when we spout off when the volcanoes blow. Give us, in other words, your heart, Lord, to deal with a world that is very, very messy. But also, Lord, install in each one of us the confidence, the certainty that you shall crush Satan. And like, Lord, you told us to pray, we pray, Lord, Maranatha, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Maranatha, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Maranatha, come quickly, Lord Jesus.